Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, hey, Randy is where he's out. Yes, Randy is out. Look at, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Damon Mann. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah, welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio. Of course, uh, check out johnpielli.com for all the latest articles and uh, interviews and all my shows are archived, of course, on my JohnPielli.com website. Just a reminder, anything I go over, any interviews, anything you want to discuss, that we keep the uh, conversation interactive, just tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And during the broadcast of this program, of course, I will reply to any and all tweets that involve the game of Major League Baseball. But I'm going to start this uh, half of the show here with an interview I played with a player that's playing in the uh, San Francisco Giants organization. His name's Bobby Haney. And Bobby Haney is a shortstop. He came out of New York, uh, went to college at South Carolina, the University of South Carolina. The, of course, a national championship uh, South Carolina team in 2006. He's a shortstop, a very defensive-minded shortstop, going through the San Francisco Giants organization. And at age 25, he's already put together a book. So he obviously has his post-baseball career straightened out. He's, a, he's an author. He's written a book. And a lot of interesting stuff that we get into. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with uh, San Francisco Giants uh, shortstop prospect, Bobby Haney. Afternoon, John Pielli here with a shortstop prospect in the San Francisco Giants organization, Bobby, Bobby Haney. Bobby, what's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good, man. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, uh, you know you've, you've been through a lot up to this point now. You know, you've, you've spent a couple years in the minor league system of the Giants. But, you know, obviously, you know, you, you, you've come, you know, pretty far for, you know, where, where you were and where you are now, huh? about it, man. Of course, you know, you had a chance to be drafted in 2006 by the Philadelphia Phillies, and instead, you know, you ended up going to the University of South Carolina. Um, you know, before we talk about, you know, your, your college career, talk a little bit about that decision, because obviously being drafted by a major league team is probably something that you were you were looking forward to and kind of excited about, and then, you know, you made the decision to go to college. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, it was uh, a little late in our draft pick. I was signed with a junior college in Florida, uh, Manatee Community College, and I was going to play ball in the South because it was so cold in New York, so I'm from. And uh, I was a draft and follow, bad draft and follow, uh, back in 06. And it was the last year, so they wanted both draft me and follow me throughout college. So I thought it was a good idea not to sign because it wasn't for, you know, a lot of money. And I went to college and didn't play at my junior college my first year. And then second year, I played every day at shortstop and did pretty well. And then times for the University of South Carolina, they gave me a big chance to get drafted for all those scouts in the SEC. So. Yeah, absolutely, man. And of course, you know, you, you end up having a very good, uh, very good run at South Carolina. You end up winning the national championship. You know, tell us a little bit about some of the moments going on through college and, you know, obviously, you know, leading up to winning a national championship. Oh, it was great. It was tremendous. We had, you know, great coaches, great teammates. Everybody, you know, we pulled around. It's like, you know, the team, but when we got to go, there was, you know, there was nothing but baseball and strictly business. It was all about winning, you know, we, if we lost the game, it was, you know, it was devastating. We never thought we should lose any game ever. Of course, the midweek games, we didn't lose one. Or maybe one, I don't know. But, uh, and then, once SEC plays, you know, the end, it was, you know, it was all go. He couldn't, he couldn't lose a series in SEC, and we didn't. I think we won, you know, nine in a row in the SEC. That picked up a good time. And, uh, all the coaches at Arkansas said, you know, you guys have a chance to win the national championship this year with your pitching. Our pitching was just tremendous all the way through the starters to the closers. And with time hitting and a bunch of junior college guys scrapping away, the tremendous defense that had me in field and outfield. It was a really good shot. It was over how we did it. So. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, you end up winning a national championship, and, you know, within that same year, you get drafted by the San Francisco Giants, which I'm sure, you know, you being drafted at that point was probably something that you, you, you probably anticipated a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how it felt, you know, being drafted by the Giants and, you know, the chance to go out on the West Coast. Yeah, no, it was definitely, you know, very super regional. The draft was coming up before super regional in college, and, you know, to get drafted, it was good, like, San Jose, you know, has, you know, some relation to the Giants and proximity and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of Giant fans that go out there to see a lot of the games. But, uh, you know, once again, John Pielli here with Bobby Haney, an infield prospect for the San Francisco Giants. And, you know, the last couple of years, you know, you, you've, you've had a chance to develop a little bit. Obviously, a guy that's, you know, known for your glove. Um, you know, what? How, how do you view yourself as a, as a hitter right now? Right now, I still... Yeah, 
just really help play along, trying to figure some stuff things out, but I like, can definitely get stronger and uh, most importantly, smarter at the plate. Yeah, and, you know, you touched on a couple important things there. You know, you talk about, you know, guys that, you know, are, are kind of known for their glove, you know, stuff that, you you know, you, you're working on in regards to being, you know, more fundamentally sound as a hitter. I'm sure taking pitches is important, being able to work counts, and obviously, you know, just, just executing, the you know, the fundamental game of baseball as an offensive player. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, very important that gloves, the gloves you have to have your gloves your best part of the game if you get the ability to do it, but um, yeah, just moving the runners over and sacrificing yourself. And uh, obviously, San Francisco is not a hitter in friendly park at AT&T, so they really focus on defense being the best part. Yeah, no question about it. And of course, you know, Bobby, he obviously had the opportunity to write a book, and the book's called From Kings Park to Omaha. You know, kind of a little story about your life and your, your childhood tribulations and everything that you're going through. Tell the listeners a little bit about your book and, you know, what inspired you to put it together. You know, the book's mostly about, uh, you know, my life growing up. I'm all of it. all after my hero, my old Derek Jr. book that he wrote about his life story growing up. And uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, but uh, so growing up, and uh, I played in junior, going to uh, going to a big school, winning the national championship was obviously a big deal. But um, yeah, just inspiring the kids, the young kids, and the parents, you know, to, to keep working hard. And uh, the way my parents brought me up, being the right way, and had a had a good recruited by big schools. Some of the parents don't know how to go about, you know, getting their kids recruited. Yeah, no question about it. Of course, you know, you, you obviously went to high school in New York, you know, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty much, uh, you know, raised, you know, in, in the New York spotlight and stuff like that. And, you know, you probably grew up rooting for the Yankees since you're a Derek Jeter fan. Tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up and what really kind of drew you to baseball and, you know, what kind of inspired you to go to where you are now. Uh, yeah, I just... I think I picked up a bat when I was like one and a half. My dad said, or something like that. I don't know, one and a half years old. And I guess ever since then, I was just, you know, crazy about the game. I wouldn't even go to the team when I was like 10 or 11 years old. But I'd be like, I'd be throwing the ball in the backfield by myself, get to pitch back. And all these hitting and stuff like that. People would look at me like I'm crazy. Like this little kid who had me trick or treat on Halloween, play baseball myself. But, uh, yeah, just stuff like that. Um, and then, the other year, he just, Tim Martinez, when he came over to the Yankees in 95, 96, at the John Madden I was inspired by him a little bit. The Yankees won the World Series in 96, so I was a Yankee fan at that time, obviously. So I was a little kid in New York, so I like the winning team. So that's where at the time, but uh, yeah, then Jeter came along, and that was pretty much it for me. No, that's, that's awesome, man. Now, before I let you go, man, let's tell the listeners a little bit, you know, more about your book and how, uh, you know, how they can find it and get a hold of it if they want to take a look at it. Yeah, so I usually do uh, book signing at tournaments and uh, little league all over and uh, all over the East Coast. But you can go to kp2omaha.com, kp and the number two, kp2omaha.com, and uh, order order a copy up there and I'll personalize it and sign it for uh, whoever. 
Nice, and that's awesome, man. And uh, obviously, best of luck here. You know, hope to see you in the big league soon, and keep up the good work. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Bobby Haney, a shortstop prospect in the San Francisco Giants organization. He's moving his way up. Um, uh, I, I think within the next couple of years, probably towards the end of uh, 2015, I think we'll start to see the possibility of him coming up to the major leagues and obviously wishing the best of luck. A guy with a very good head on his shoulders and you know, a college graduate, a guy that seems to really have uh, things together, not only you know in regards to baseball and his pursuit of a passion to make the major leagues, but you know obviously the stuff he's doing. He's already written a book. I, I think the guy is uh, talented enough that he's he, he's got a, he's going to have a successful career in whatever he ends up choosing. And hopefully that involves being a major league player at some point. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. Um, we're going to get into a lot of stuff going on. Bases empty blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. Of course, a reminder to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. We'll be back after this. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe DeLisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And And we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Faces empty blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Faces empty blog. 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 Welcome back, Passball Show and TR Radio Network. Of course, John Pielli here with you. And I'm going to go over a couple things I went over on my blog. Of course, check that out. Bases Empty blog on JohnPielli.com. And, you know, my uh, articles are also posted on MTRmedia.com. So check that out as well. A couple of my articles in regards to the Mets are also posted on Baseball Prospectus. So shout out to Peter Schiller, who's, uh, you know, carried my articles 
for over the past year now. So, you know, you ever check out baseballperspectives.com. Definitely a good way to uh, get caught up on everything going on, you know, in regards to different perspectives from different teams and stuff like that. So check that out as well. Um, you know, in regards to what I was talking about, I talked a little bit about the uh, MVP race in the National League. And, you know, the, you know, Andrew McCutcheon ends up winning it. And I don't think too many people are going to dispute the fact that McCutcheon won the MVP in the National League. He was the best player on what was, you know, the, a team that made the playoffs. And the Pirates are certainly one of the surprise teams. Manager Clint Hurdle winning a manager of the year. I don't think anybody has any issues with that. But the Pirates, of course, a team that probably wasn't predicted by many to make the playoffs. And I think that's yeah, a safe thing to say, you know, in regards to the Pirates and what the expectations were coming into the season. So I think McCutcheon does get a benefit of some of the things that happened and went well for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But I'll tell you, McCutcheon, in my opinion, didn't have that MVP type of season. And, uh, you know, we could talk all the time about the debates of whether or not Miguel Cabrera should have won the AL MVP or Mike Trout. And I know a lot of the Sabre people are still, you know, on the Mike Trout winning the MVP every year. Trout had a good year. But, listen, Cabrera has been the MVP over the past two seasons. And I think you could have made more of a case for the 2012 season that maybe Trout had more of a chance to win the MVP that season than Cabrera. But I think in the end, Cabrera was still the guy that should have won. But in regards to the National League, you look at some of the guys that were up there and nobody really stood out. There wasn't that dominant player. There wasn't the Matt Kemp, you know, for the year that, you know, that, you know, that he had a couple of years ago, Ryan Braun, the top players in the league, the Albert Pujols are no longer there. So, you know, the National League was a little tougher to pick out. And the three finalists this year, of course, were Andrew McCutcheon of the Pirates, Paul Goldschmidt of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Yadier Molina of the St. Louis Cardinals. But I make a case that you probably should have voted for Goldschmidt. And I think Goldschmidt had the better year, was the more dominant player. And a lot of people now with the new age, the way things are set up with the new uh, the metrics and everything involved, they refuse to give a player that is on a team that doesn't make the playoffs consideration for the MVP. And I think some people want to say, well, John, if you say that, then how come you're dismissing Mike Trout of being the AL MVP over the last two years? I think Cabrera was the guy that stood out. And to me, it was between Trout and Cabrera. And Cabrera had as dominant of a season, if not better, than Trout over the last two years. You can't say the same thing about the National League. There wasn't a guy that was up there with the type of numbers that Paul Goldschmidt put up for the Arizona Diamondbacks. I know Andrew McCutcheon had a good year and the Pirates obviously deserve the credit for getting to where they ended up getting to, you know, but, you know, in the end, Goldschmidt was that much more dominant. And I'm going to go over a couple things here in regards to why I think Goldschmidt should have won the MVP. He had an outstanding season, of course. His numbers were better than McCutcheon in just about every category. He gets penalized because the Diamondbacks finished at 81 and 81 and missed the playoffs, which is what cost, obviously, Goldschmidt the consideration that he deserved. McCutcheon had a solid season. Won the Silver Slug Award, made the All-Star team. 157 games. The McCutcheon scored 97 runs, 185 hits, 38 doubles, 21 home runs, 84 RBIs. He had a 317 average, a 404 on base percentage, a 508 slugging percentage for a 912 OPS. Now, Goldschmidt, on the other hand, played 160 games, scored 103 runs, had 182 hits, 36 doubles, and led the National League in home runs with 36, RBIs with 125. I know you can make a case about RBIs being overrated. Fine, say that. You know, make that case. I don't care. But nobody else in the National League had 125 RBIs, which means the player was valuable. In fact, you know, what, you know, 
what are you going to say? It's a lousy performance. He drove in 125 runs. He wasn't good. I know you're picking up the sarcasm a little bit. But, you know, if you choose to disregard the RBI, RBI stat, which you have every right to do, Goldschmidt had a 401 on base percentage, led the league in both slugging percentage at 551 and OPS at 952. He led the NL with, you know, a 160 OPS plus and 332, 332 total bases. McCutcheon was close in OPS plus at 158, but not close in the other categories. And I think you want to bring the defensive element into play as well because, you know, you say, all right, well, McCutcheon is a star center fielder, you know, a gold glove type of center fielder. But you know what? McCutcheon didn't win the gold glove this year. He, he did not win it. And Paul Goldschmidt, oh, by the way, was the gold glove recipient at, at first base for the National League. I understand you can't compare first baseman and center fielder, and maybe overall McCutcheon's value as a center fielder is a little bit better than what Goldschmidt's is as a first baseman. But Goldschmidt what won the gold glove award and what does that go to the best defensive first baseman in the entire national league so you add that in there and the fact that mccutcheon did not win the gold glove for the nl center fielder makes more of a case that you should have voted for goldschmidt and you go back 26 27 years ago respectively there was no uh extensive stats to go by the voting system you know has changed since then mike schmidt and Andre Dawson won the MVP for the National League in 1986 and 1987. They got the award because they were the best players in the respective leagues. If you're using today's formula that you have to make the playoffs to win the award, Glenn Davis of the Astros and Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez of the Mets would have finished one through three in some order in 1986 and not Mike Schmidt. 1987, the same could be said about Ozzie Smith and Jack Clark of the Cardinals, Will Clark of the Giants. They probably would have finished one through three, and Andre Dawson, who finished uh, you know, with the best numbers in the National League, was the best player in the National League for a Cup team that didn't win, would have gotten penalized. But you know, I get the change from a sabermetric perspective. I understand that. But Goldschmidt was the better offensive player than McCutcheon this season and was also the best first baseman defensively in the National League. I understand that Goldschmidt can't play center field like McCutcheon, but he was best defensively at his position, like I said before. Don't, you know, don't the sabermetric guys like to incorporate defense into these votes? Because if you did, it would be more of a case to vote for Paul Goldschmidt, who should have this year been the National League Most Valuable Player Award winner. And of course, if you've listened to the Passball Show right here on MTR Radio Network, you know I like to deal with a lot of sarcasm and mock things out and kind of, you know, say stuff, you know, that kind of uh, goes over maybe the simple-minded fan that the person says, well, you know what, maybe he really means what he says. But, you know, the next post I made was in regards to the 2014 New York Mets, what they'll look like as of now. And of course, the Mets signed Brandon Allen to a minor league contract. And, you know, a guy who's coming off of a pretty good year in AAA for the Padres, probably could compete for a spot on this New York Mets team. That being said, the Mets' needs obviously are a lot stronger than that. They need to make uh, some bold moves and bring in some proven players if they want to be competitive in the 2014 season. But, you know, similar, I, I kind of took the, uh, the the momentum of what I did last year when I was predicting what the New York Mets outfield would be in 2013 had the season ended at the end of the 2012 season. And that, of course, would put Lucas Duda in left field would put Kirk Neuenheis in center and Mike Baxter over in right field. And, of course, the offseason went by and the Mets made a couple moves. And by the time opening day started, they had an outfield of Lucas Duda in left, Colin Cowgill in center, and Marlon Byrd in right. I would expect something similar and hopefully better options out there for the Mets this year in regards to their outfield. But I wanted to do it a little further. I wanted to break down the team of what it would look like if the Mets were going to put 
the product on the field in 2014 based on what they have right now on their 40-man roster. And obviously, this is before the Mets make a couple ads, which they will. There'll be a couple pitchers probably that are going to come up onto the 40-man roster to expand the Mets, you know, and keep them, uh, you know, from being eligible for the Rule 5 draft that's coming up in a little bit. But at the time I wrote this article, the Mets' uh, 40-man roster sat at 36. And I was putting together a team of what the Mets would look like and kind of bringing it up in a sarcastic way. Like, let's say you were in a New York Mets organization and the Mets, you know, ticket-based trying to sell some tickets. Here's what we would say about the 2014 New York Mets. Um, you know, understand this is a parody. This is a little bit of a joke. Hopefully take it a little bit as tongue-in-cheek. But here they are. The offensively in 2014, the Mets are going to have a logjam at first base with Ike Davis and Lucas Duda and Josh Satin expected to be on the roster. Having the three of them on the roster at start the season with Davis playing against righties and Josh Satin playing against lefties. Duda, to me, gives the team more spark off the bench as a pinch hitter and still, in spite of him being a lousy outfielder, gives you a little option as somebody to put in there if needed on a day, on a you know once-in-a-week type of basis. The Mets infield, Daniel Murphy returns to play second base. Uh, Ruben Tejada is looking for a bounce-back season after a difficult 2013 season. He is at shortstop. Of course, the franchise, David Wright, is coming back to play first base. And you look at the catcher. You know, the Mets are going to go with the star young guy, Travis Darno. He's going to be the starter. And you look at the backup situation, which you're going to have with Anthony Record and Juan Centeno, as they're going to battle for the backup catcher spot on the team. The Mets outfield, get ready for this outfield because Eric Young is going to be in left. Matt Dendecker is going to be in center. And Juan Lagares is going to be playing right field. That's the Mets starting lineup. And here, you know, with Young leading off playing left field, Tejada batting second at shortstop, Murphy batting third at second base, Wright batting cleanup at third base. Either Davis, Duda, or Satin are going to be playing first base, batting fifth with Darno batting sixth, Lagares batting seventh, and then Decker batting eighth. I think Den Decker is, you know, in spite of what we've seen at the major league level with Lagares as, as a center fielder, I actually think Den Decker is a better defensive center fielder. You know, mark my words, when you see it happen, you'll actually start to believe me. But the Mets bench, set as it is now, once again, picking players right off the 40-man roster. No, no additional acquisitions through trades or free agents or Rule 5 picks or guys coming up from the minor leagues. The Mets bench is going to look like this. Justin Turner is probably going to get the job over Omar Quintanilla as a backup middle infielder because he could kind of be a better option as a pinch hitter. The biggest battle, like I said, is going to be t between Centeno and Wrecker, who's going to be the backup catcher. Now, Andrew Brown probably has an advantage as the last uh, bat off the bench, you know, maybe against Kirk Newenheist, maybe against Cesar Puello, who are both on a 40-man roster. I'd probably go with Brown. Other uh, you know, possibilities are Wilmer Flores, Wilfredo Tovar, Zach Lutz, and Jordani Valdespin because they're on a 40-man roster. Get ready for the Mets starting rotation because right now they're going to be missing Matt Harvey, who's you know, missing the whole season probably due to Tommy John surgery. Jeremy Hefner probably unlikely to pitch at all this year either. Both guys on a 40-man roster. But the Mets rotation could still be a bright spot even if they don't make any moves. Jonathan Neese leads a young staff, which includes Zach Wheeler, Dylan G, and Henry Mejia. Hansel Robles will probably not be ready for the bigs right away, so Carlos Torres is almost a lock to be the fifth starter in a Mets rotation. And I think the Mets will consider in this type of environment, if this was a team that they were going to go with opening day, maybe stretching out guys like Joris Familia and Gonzalez Germán, 
you know, who both been starting pitchers before, but obviously pitched in the Mets bullpen uh, this past season. The bullpen brings you back to the closer, Bobby Parnell. He returns from his back injury. German and Familia will probably give the Mets some youth setting up with Vic Black, who was obtained in a Marlon Bird trade with the Pittsburgh Pirates as a possible candidate to be the eighth inning guy. Scott Rice, Josh Edgen are coming back as the, the primary lefty setup man. And guess who else is back? Scott Atchison. He's a lock to be the last pitcher in the pen. Odds are the Mets will use several players that I just talked about. As most other fans, I expect to see the Mets try to address their needs in the outfield, shortstop, starting rotation, and bullpen. I expect the outlook of this team to be better by spring training. And look at it this way. Even if the team does not look like it could win a championship, it's much better than the team that I just bragged about and talked about in regards to trying to assemble itself together. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take another break. I got one more interview to play, and we're going to finish up the program right here. Back after this, don't forget, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. I'm Karen Siaska Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hope you guys are enjoying the program so far. Um, right now, I'm going to play an interview that I recorded, a very good interview, by the way, that I recorded with former Major League infielder Damian Jackson. And Damian was part of the 2003 Red Sox team that, of course, fell a little short to the Yankees and had seven-game ALCS, the Aaron Boone game, the whole thing. But, uh, you know, established himself as a middle infielder for the San Diego Padres. But the most interesting thing that I want to get into here is the fact that this is a guy that was essentially a walk-on his senior year in high school and because of that his speed and his raw talent he was uh, drafted 
you know, by the Cleveland Indians and ends up uh, doing a lot uh, behind the scenes, working hard to get himself to be the major league player that he ends up being. And certainly a very good story in regards to talking about guys that busted their ass to get to the major leagues. And you know, I hope you guys really enjoy this interview because I did. A great spot with Damian Jackson, who played for several teams, you know, including the Indians, the Padres, the Nationals. Uh, and uh, you know a couple other teams throughout his career. A very good defensive shortstop, but he made himself that way. Always known for his speed, he became a good hitter. Uh, you know, certainly had a couple big moments in his career that we end up talking to in this interview. So hopefully, you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League infielder Damian Jackson. My name is John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League infielder Damian Jackson. Damian, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot, John. Just trying to. Just to dream alive. How are you? Yeah, hey man. Uh, you know, of course, you know, you had a you had a pretty long career. You're involved with a lot of different organizations. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about the you know the beginning because there's actually a story about when you know when you played high high school baseball, you only you only played for the first time when you were a senior, right? Well, that was high school ball. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like that. I wasn't playing. I was on. A recreational league. I was on an adult league team, uh, so I was getting a few reps. I wasn't getting very much coaching. So you are correct. I did not play organized high school ball until my senior year. Yeah, I find that I find that fascinating because you know, like obviously, you know, you're. You're, you're gifted, you're a gifted athlete, and, you know, it obviously showed, you know, once, you know, you, know, you, you, know, you play your one year high school ball, and, you know, all of a sudden you're getting calls from scouts, right? Yeah, but it was also one of the things that, or I should say legal, that I was so rough and uh, unpolished, is what you hear a lot of people say, so uh, it was a surprise. I had a lot of love for the game, and obviously when I started to gain some interest, uh, it was um, reassuring to keep going and, and not give up, even though things were, were tough, and, and some of the failures were a little bit more than I would have liked it, it to be, and I got yelled at a little bit more by my coach during my senior year, but, you know, when I started to gain some interest, it, it became reassuring. Um, and, and, you know, it's also kind of incorporated a model of mine, just how I work everyone. So it, it, it winds up working out. Uh, everything in life seems to always do. And, and that's the story I'm thankful for. Oh, absolutely, man. Of course, you ended up being drafted in a 1991 draft by the Indians. Tell us about being drafted and then your, your early parts in the Indians organization. Well, I was drafted by the Indians in the 24th round, and that was uh, pretty far down there and, and pretty far back. And, and I was extremely naive. I didn't know anything. And, and um, so he came into my house, and, and we started talking about options and uh, possible signing bonus and, and, and so on and so forth. And to make a long story short, they uh, basically told me that he would be dropping on a plane. He would be getting a tremendous opportunity. Um, they claimed that my draft status had no uh, bearing on anything as far as opportunities. They said, you will not get a dime. Like we said, you're getting an opportunity. You're, you're, you're going to get a flying ticket. And I said, I can't do that. Uh, not only had I been a 
And now, you know, as you're going through, you're, you're trying to, you're obviously trying to polish your skills. What, are, what were the main things that you were looking to try to just, uh, you know, sharpen and kind of get yourself ready to be a major league player? Well, to play under control a little bit better. Uh, I was extremely quick. Um, this was one of the things that, that helped me succeed, but it was also one of those things that helped you fail. Uh, I didn't know how to play. Major League career. Well, I appreciate that. I feel like my talent 
hand the door of my work kept me in the home, uh, so to speak. So these are just a few things that, you know, obviously me having two boys of my own now and I also uh, coach baseball. These are some of the things that I tell these two. Absolutely, man. And I tell you, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it shows. And you know, of course, you know, you end up breaking into the major leagues with the Indians, and then you go over to the Reds. And it really, you know, it seems to be your time with San Diego. You finally get a chance to be a you know a major league regular playing you know shortstop and second base for the Padres over the course of three seasons. Take us back to that time and tell us a little bit about you know you know how it was for you and you know how it really felt to be you know just about a major league you know regular player. Well, don't disrespect anyone in San Diego and their talent and their whatever. Uh, it was refreshing to get away from all those studs, or excuse me, to get from behind all those studs in Cleveland and Cincinnati because if you can go back to this point in time, you know, I had Chelsea, Omar, this friend, and Carlos Baez, and Carlos Baez, the reason. When it becomes Tony Fernandez and, and then for a minute, Jeff Kent. So, I mean, I get over to Cincinnati and it's very lacking and that room. Uh, and Tony Reese was the, you know, the baby that they had been growing the, the whole time within the organization. So, uh, with San Diego, they, they, they presented a little bit more opportunity. Uh, it was awesome because Again, John Pielli here, a former Major League infielder, Damian Jackson. Now, you know, 2001, you know, you end up hitting a, a grand slam against Wade Miller of the Houston Astros, and you broke your bat in the process. Uh, tell, you know, take us back to that day because I find that phenomenal that, you know, you could have, you know, you obviously have enough power, you know, to, to break your bat and still be able to clear the fence. Like that, or not so 
particular situation is one of the you know, up and coming issues with, with, with broken backs and wood and, and things of that nature, you know, these bad companies and, and major baseball is finally cracking down with um, you know, having some regulations and they have to mandate who can who can um you know, serve to the major league baseball players and, and who can't. You almost have to be certified. Uh, because these companies are just putting together with this terrible wood and um, with a lot of these awful stickers and these false promises that are on them. That particularly wasn't the case with this situation. It was a little smarter, but it was a maple bat, and that is one of the things that uh, people will, will bring up about somebody shooting these maple bats. Well, John, ash breaks from the outside in, so you'll see it right away. But maple breaks from the inside out. And sometimes you don't have a, a, a break or a crack in there, and you don't even know it. The bag will harm, and you can pump it on the ground, and all the things that you do to check and see if the bat is still good to go, and it will still sound and react like it would if it was brand new. Yeah, but, absolutely, man. And I tell you, you know, and you know, you, you put the combination of the speed of the pitch against the the speed of your swing, you know, it makes for you know a big contact every single time you swing the bat. So you know, if you don't know that there's anything wrong with the bat, dude, you know, anything can happen. Absolutely, and there was a, 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 a you know a barrel, and it was a funny sound. It almost sounded like. Uh, Someone was popping a crack on a champagne bottle. And the batter flew all over the days. I believe it was Vinny Castillo playing very base, and he had to kind of jump out of the way of it because it was curling at his feet, so to speak. So it was, it was a lot of velocity, and obviously uh, nothing was really stopped. My momentum wasn't stopped because he didn't, you know, they call it getting the kitchen. He didn't hit it towards the handle of the bat. It was on the barrel, and it just popped. I, I, I can't explain it. I'm just... No, absolutely. I tell you, it's a you know fascinating, fascinating moment to have. And of course, you know after you leave the Padres, you're, you're with the Tigers in 2002, the Red Sox in 2003, the Cubs and Royals in 2004, back to the Padres in 2005, and the Nationals in 2006. You know, all this jumping around. Did you ever, did you ever feel like you were with another organization that you felt you were going to get a chance to to do everything you're capable of? Triple A guys, but really with 
Well, the opportunity that you're getting to do so shut the heck up. Um, focus on your task at hand, but I didn't know to be honest. I just felt like if I were one puzzle piece that could help that organization win, then that was enough for me. I feel like a good team uh, consists of a good puzzle, and a lot of people do so. Um, consumed with free agencies and, and the free agents that are just these studs and you know what they've done, they look at their numbers and they look at this and they look at that. Well, you know, you can't you can't put everyone in place with anyone. Uh it it usually consists of a family affair, that's the reason why. Every time you'll see someone go out and stack these teams, about your superstars, they struggle because you're trying to gain camaraderie, you're trying to gain trust, you're trying to create this family affair to where everyone feels so good about coming to work because they know that when I sacrifice myself with this bond or getting the better over uh, with less than two hours on second base, that the other guy's going to get a man and I'm doing something for a greater purpose. I'm not just about my batting average, and I don't just um, worry that when I get this one over, when I sacrifice myself, and initially that's just going to make my numbers look worse than they really are. So you have to get a great chemistry, and you have to put guys up there. And really trust and believe in each other, and you have to become a family. Yeah, no question about it. I tell you, talk about chemistry. You know, you're a part of the the 2003 Red Sox team, and of course, you know the Red Sox, you know, made it to the seventh game of the ALCS. You know, losing to the Yankees on the Aaron Boone home run. You know, how did it feel to be a part of that team? Because that, you know, when you think about you know the 2003 and going into 2004, you think of, you know those Red Sox teams of having a you know a lot of chemistry within itself. Yeah, it was a great experience. It's similar to the old four situation. The old four situation, uh, was a little different, but obviously they won and, 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 and playing trucks, everything. But it was kind of similar to, to this team this year. Everyone, goofy or not, say what you want about this stupid bandit of idiots, you know, you, you, you heard a lot of things that was out there. And it's so funny because people that criticize such a, I guess you can say, an agreement or a commitment of a team has no idea that that stupidity that you call it is one of the most bonding glues you can ever have. And that's the stuff that the boss is tired of ever. Um, and it just makes it fun to come to work. Not only is it just growing facial hair, it almost feels like we just cut our palms and spit in our palms and shook out of it and just, you know, bonded in some sort of way like the old style of, of bloodletting or, or, or anything like that that won't happen in the past. It feels kind of like that. It's an instant addition to your family and it just makes you want to do anything for that guy with the manager and the players. Players for the managers, manager for the players, and players to the player. If you feel like I would run into a brick wall for that guy, then you have the ingredients. 
complaining because everyone on the business is the problem is there. Yeah, absolutely, man. I tell you, I agree with that 100%. You, could, you, you just mentioned a lot of the, the similar type of chemistry kind of worked for the Red Sox this year when they won the World Series. Uh, once again, John Pielli here, former Major League infielder Damian Jackson. Now, you know, when, you know, in 2007, you end up uh, signing with the Dodgers, and you end up being released in spring training. Did you feel once that happened that it was kind of coming towards the end for you? Well, I did, and I did. But a lot of people don't know about the uh, 2006 season with the Nationals and what going on over to the Dodgers was that I was experiencing some, some medical situations that doctors couldn't diagnose. Um, I felt like it was reducing my productivity because I was having good days and bad days, and um, if I couldn't get a grip on what this, this problem was and what the cause of it is, you know what I mean? Because if you don't know the cause, you can't fix it. So if I couldn't get this problem fixed, then yes, I did think this is where it's coming from. But, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't have such a problem with that, you know. Um, like some people might, it's not to say that I don't want to go just as much as another guy. I feel like it's like life. For every, every, for every man that dies, a child is born. So it gives, a, it gives another guy an opportunity to hopefully fulfill his childhood dream like it did mine. And plus, I was kind of a fatherless child. I didn't, I didn't grow up with a father. And I had two boys of my own, and I figured, no, listen, man. I, you know, I, you know, it's great to hear about, you know, all the hard work and determination and everything you did to get to where, you know, you ended up and having a successful major league career. Listen, Damien, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and uh, you know, best of luck to you in the future. Very nice spot there with Damian Jackson. And, of course, you know, you know, if you follow baseball really through the beginning part of the 2000s, you'd realize, you know, Damian was a, you know, integral part of the major leagues for several seasons with several different teams. But, dude, I definitely want to thank Damian Jackson. I want to thank Bobby Haney. I want to thank Juan Barringer and, of course, Rod Gasper for being part of this program. Uh, very good signing for the Giants. They signed Tim Hudson to a two-year deal, $23 million. Very good deal for them. Um, much more stuff to get into as we go into free agency, trade, stuff like that. So definitely be back with you next week. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the program, and uh, hopefully listen back soon.